Okay, we'll start with a short story. This is taken, this is taken from the previous level, where he described something which happened to his father. And who was the father of the previous level? The Barashah? Right. Right. What's the name of the Barashah? What was his name? That's right. That's right. Okay. Somehow they're all related to one another. Yes, that's right. Okay. So the previous level is relating that the previous level always wrote. He had a diary, a very extensive diary from age eight. Someone from age eight he was always writing. So we have, we have some of the things that he wrote, we have. So the previous ever writes, after the evening services, 8.30, my father, who's my father? Previous ever is talking now. My father, Rebbe Rasha'am. The father of previous ever, says my father was drinking tea and he told me that 20 years back, which is the year 1876, 1876, this is taking place 1896, 1896 okay? 1876, on Chof Cheshven, the 20th day of Cheshven, whose birthday is Chof Cheshven, 20th day of Cheshven? Right. Which was this past Shabbos. This past Shabbos was Chok Cheshven. Okay, now in the year 1876, how old was the Rebbe Hashem? 1876. When was he born? 1860. He was born 1861. 1860, okay. He was born 1860. This is taking place in 1875, actually. 1875. How old is he? 15. 15. Okay. Okay, so the Rebbe Rashab is saying to his son what happened when he was 15 years old. When the Rebbe Rashab was 15 years old. On his birthday. It was in the week of Chai Yisara, which is this week's portion of the Torah. So his father, the Rebbe Rashab's father calls him over in the year 1860, in the year 1875. So the father of the Rebbe Rashab calls him over. Who's the father of the Rebbe Rashab? The Rebbe Rashab. The Marash. What was the name of Marash? Marash Shmuel. Shmuel, that's right. So in the year 1875, the Rebbe Marash calls over the Rebbe Rashab on his birthday on the birthday of the son who's 15 years old, and he tells him privately a Hasidic discourse. Okay, usually a Hasidic discourse is said to Hasidim, but this was a private mindless set to, as a birthday gift, this is probably a birthday gift, the mindless. And then the Rebbe Marash tells his son that he should go back home and review the mindless by himself and afterwards come back to me. Okay, 
So the Rebbe Rashab says, I repeated, reviewed the Maimo two, three times, and then I went back to my father. But when I came back, I saw there were many things for Yechidus. What's Yechidus? A private, private meeting. Right. So there are many Chesedim there, and the Gabai, you know what Gabai means? The secretary. The secretary, like Rabbi Groen, you know, the secretary, his name was Levi. He was very angry that because of me, the Yechidus started late. He was angry at the Rebbe Rashab, the son of the Rebbe Marash. He was very angry at him. And uh, when he saw that, when the Rebbe Rashab saw what's going on, he went back. He didn't enter his father's home. He went back a couple of steps. He didn't want to enter at that point. Now, the Rebbe Rashab says, whenever I would go to my father, again, who's the father of the Rebbe Rashab? The Marash. I always was careful, notice me. Why was I careful? Because I didn't want to arouse the jealousy of my brother, the Rebbe Hashab's brother, which you don't have over there, his name was the Raza, he was called, Zalman Alin. And I didn't want to arouse the jealousy of my brother-in-law. Because the Rebbe Marash used to call the Rebbe Hashab off into his house, to his room. The Rebbe Hashab was careful to do it secretly. And now when I saw that my father, the Marash, was having Yechidus, he was having a private audience with Chassidim, I didn't go into his room. Instead, I took the back room. I went to my mother's house, to my mother's room, and I waited in the bedroom next to my father's room. So he went around and he was waiting in the bedroom. After around an hour, I hear the voice of my father, humming the tune. He's going from the room of Yechidus. He goes to the bedroom. He opens the door and he says, I was imagining that you were here and waiting for me. So come in. So the Rebbe Rashab says, when I entered the room of the Rebbe Marash, he was sitting in one of the chairs and his spirit, his Holy Spirit was very happy and he told me several stories. So we have several stories with the Rebbe Marash telling his son on his 15th birthday. Okay, story number one. The Balshemto had a chassid, a simple ordinary Jew, but he feared God. He worked by digging pits you know, for water and uh, he was always careful that when he ate bread he only ate bread with salt and water he never ate potatoes he always ate bread, salt and water but his house, his family he gave them everything he gave them bread and chicken and everything but for himself he was careful he only ate the minimum he never tasted the taste of meat. He was expert in the five books of Moses and Psalms, Tehillim, Baal Peh, he knew it by heart. But the translations he hardly knew. Okay, but he would always repeat it. Whenever he worked, he was always repeating the words of the Chumash and Tehillim. And the the Malash is saying about a chassid of the Baal Shem Tov. 
And the Boshemtiv said about this Jew, his name was Herschel, he said, Herschel the Greber, Herschel the one who, who digs, he has, he has a daya upstairs. He has an opinion upstairs. That's the first story. You know what that means? Upstairs, when they make decisions, they take in consideration what Herschel has to say. When he prays, it's taking consideration. He didn't know the translation of the words, but he was so earnest and so honest in his work, in his devotion to God. So what Simpson said about him, when he prays, they're listening upstairs. Okay. Story number two, which again, the Rebbe Malash is saying to his son on the 15th birthday. The Balshemto, before he was revealed as a Rebbe, what was his occupation? Anyone know? The Balshemto. No, no, no. Huh? What he used to do, he was a helper in a, in a cheder. In school? Yeah, yeah, he was like, yeah, he was the helper of a teacher in cheder, in Jewish school, assistant teacher, okay. He would bring them to cheder, right? I don't know if he would drive them, he'd probably walk with them. He would bring them back, and he used to kiss the children with so much avasisval, so much love of Jews. So, who was the success of the Balsham Times? The Maggit, Mizritcher Maggit. Mizritcher Maggit. Look in your paper. Okay. The Mizritcher Maggit said, I wish myself to kiss the Sefer Torah with as much affection as the Balsham kissed the Jewish children that said Olive Base. Okay? That was the second thing. Number three, the Alter Rebbe, what was his name? He was the first Lubavitch Rebbe. He used to see the Mizritcher Magid whenever he wanted, awake and not asleep. You know what that means? That means after the Magid passed away, after the Alter Rebbe, the Rebbe, the Magid passed away, the Alter Rebbe would see the Magid whenever he wanted, being awake, not sleeping, not in a dream, being awake, he would see the Maggit. And he would ask the Maggit all his questions. The Baal Shem Tov, when it came to Baal Shem Tov, he would see the Baal Shem Tov in a dream on Shabbos and on festivals. And only when the Baal Shem Tov would come to him, not necessarily when he would want. Okay, you following? But after Petabul, Petrburg means after the Alter Rebbe was imprisoned and freed from prison. After Petrburg, there was a major change in the life of the Alter Rebbe. After Petrburg, the Balshemtiv would come to him whenever he wanted, on Shabbos and on the festivals, when he was awake. Okay, following? Okay. I'm going to skip some of the stories. I'll skip some of the stories. We'll get back to that, I hope, next time. But anyway, there was like 12 different short stories that Rebbe Marash told Rebbe Rashab. I just told you how many? Three. All together are 12. So the other ones will leave for a different time. But I'm gonna skip uh, some of the stories. When my father, the Rebbe Marash, finished telling me these 12 stories, 
he told me, come back to me at night. Now this was the rule. Whenever he would tell me, come in the morning, the morning meant 6 a.m. When he would tell me early morning, it meant 4 a.m. When he would tell me, come back at night, it meant between 2 and 3 o'clock. That was the rule. Huh? In the morning, right? In the middle of the night. In the middle of the night. Right. When I came home, when I, so the Rav says, when I, when I went back home, I repeated everything that my father told me and I wrote it down in short. I said the Shema reading you say before going to sleep, but I wasn't able to say it at length because I was so sleepy, exceptionally sp- sleepy, and I slept for three hours. I woke up and my heart was pounding because of the dream that I dreamt and because of the vision that I saw in my dream and I was, I was in a state of amazement, of shock. I looked at the clock and it was almost two o'clock. I got my clothes ready, ready dressed myself uh, up. I said the blessings that you say in the morning and I got ready to go to my father's Rebbe Marash. When I came to my father, his Holy Spirit was in a very good mood and he taught me another maimo, and this went on for three hours. Then, while learning that, he told me several more stories, something like six more stories. Six stories. No, five stories it was. Okay, so you're following what's going on. What time is this now? It's around five in the morning. Suddenly to me, and he says, we spoke too much. Tell me, what was the dream you had at night? What did you see? What did you hear? So, so the Rebbe Shabbos describes that at that second, when my father told me that, I was shaking, my, my knees were knocking back and forth, hitting each other, and it looks like the, my face changed colors, because my father said, what are you so scared? Why are you so embarrassed? Just tell me everything in an organized way. Who did you see in the gym and who did you recognize? Again, this is a 15-year-old Rebbe Rasha. So I was still shaking and I couldn't speak. I didn't have words didn't come out of my mouth. But after a while, I overcame the shock and I started saying those that I recognized was the grandfather. Who was the grandfather? Tzemach Tzedek, who at that point had passed away. I saw Tzemach Tzedek. He was wearing Shabbos clothes. Rebbe Hashab had seen the Tzemach Tzedek when he was young. He was wearing Shabbos clothes. White, he described the garments white. I saw my uncle, the Bolch Shalom, who was the oldest son of the Tzemach Tzedek, and that's where the Rebbe comes from. He comes from the Bolch Shalom. And and the other people that I saw, I didn't recognize. So my father, Rebbe Marash, asked, where, where were they sitting? How were they sitting? And I told them two were sitting on the head of the table, and back then there were seven people. On the right side, you know, there were two additional people, and in the back there was someone else. He gave the whole description of where everyone was sitting. So my father said the two that were sitting on the head of the table were the Balshemtev on the right side and the Mizritchim Magad on the left. The people sitting in back of them, three of them were students of the Baal Shemta, four were students of the Magid, 
the Alter Rebbe was sitting on the right side of the Bolshemto. Next to him was the Mittler Rebbe, and then uh, my brother of the Lake, and keeps on saying who each person is. Then the Rebbe asks him, the Rebbe Marash asks his son, tell me, what did you hear? Do you remember what you heard? So the Rebbe Hashab tells his father what the Baal Shem Tov said, what the Maggit said, what the Alt Rebbe said, the Mitla Rebbe and the Semach Tzedek. He repeats to him five teachings of Torah which he heard from the Baal Shem Tov, the Maggit and all of them. And here it says what each one said. I'll just tell you a part of the first one. What did the Baal Shem Tov tell, say? Baal Shem Tov quoted a Mishnah in Pilki office in the saying of our fathers. Who is a Giboil? Who is a... What, what does Giboil mean? No, strong man. Who is strong? Hakoivish as Yitzvah, the one who conquers his Yitzvah, evil inclination. That's what the Mishnah says. So Vashem said, it doesn't say the one who breaks his evil inclination. It says the one who conquers it. Because to break the Yitzvah does not require strength. To break the Yitzhahara, it's enough just to be normal, just to have straight logic. Straight logic says, break the Yitzhahara. But to conquer the Yitzhahara, and to utilize the energy of the Yitzhahara, the evil inclination, to serve God, that requires strength. Okay, that was the teaching of the Baal Shem Tov, and then he kept on going saying from, from the Rabbeim to the Tzemach Tzedek. Okay, maybe next time we'll get more to some of the stories that we missed out. Okay, now we're going back to the Zohar. Okay. You don't need a Chumash now. <laughs> Today we're going straight to Zohar. What was the point in the first story where he said that he didn't eat meat? Is it a sin? Is it a sin? No, he did it... Uh, because he was like refraining from any uh, any pleasures of this world so his way of doing it was by not eating meat but but on the other hand the important part his family gave everything that was the important part for himself he decided to be you know extra religious that was his but not on the expense of others not as a penance in a certain way yes he didn't fast but he was okay now, we began a Zohar last week. Before we go back to the Zohar, we also began last week an introduction <coughs> of Zohar. We'll first begin with continuing the introduction of Zohar, and then we'll go to one of the parts of the Zohar that we began and we'll continue uh, learning and analyzing the Zohar. In common terminology in the Talmud, when the Talmud wants to prove something, it says, Ta Shema. Come and Shema and hear. What are you going to hear? It brings some support, some proof for something. In the Zohar, when the Zohar wants to prove something, it says, Ta Chazi. Come and take a look. It doesn't say come and hear, it says come and take a look. Come and see. The Talmud says come and hear. The Zohar says come and see. Okay. Now, what is the significance of this change? It's very significant because Talmud is based on hearing. Hearing equals understanding. 
Understanding equals analysis. The Talmud is based on analysis. You hear and you understand, you comprehend and you analyze. That's how you learn Talmud. The Zohar, on the other hand, which represents Pnimiyas HaTeirah, it represents the inside of the Torah, the soul of the Torah. The Zohar is based on vision. It's based on perception. Not on analysis, but on perception. Since it's based on perception, the Zohar will say, come and see, come and see and perceive. That's what the Zohar is introducing us to, perception. Now, based on this difference between Talmud and Zohar, we get to the difference we discussed last week, who is capable, who is a keli, who is a vessel to learn the Talmud, and who is a vessel to learn the Zohar. When it comes to learning Talmud, everyone is fit to learn Talmud. Because Talmud is analysis, you come and you hear something, and you analyze it. So you're invited to come and listen. Anyone could listen and analyze and understand. When it comes to the Zohar, the Zohar says, come and see. If you're told to see, then the question is, do you see it or don't you see it? Do you perceive it or don't you perceive it? It's either you do or you don't. If you perceive it, then you have it. If you don't perceive it, then you're missing it. So therefore, when it comes to the Zohar, you have to be a keli, you have to be a vessel to be able to receive the light of the Zohar. And that's what the word literally, literally Zohar means shine. Zohar is a light that shines, and Zohar says, come and see the light. In order to come and see the light, you have to be, you have to be a keli for it. You have to be a vessel. Now, who is a keli, who's a vessel for the Zohar? So the standard procedure is, like we spoke about last week, someone who has a higher neshama, a higher soul, a higher level soul, which means that the soul is shining. If your soul is shining, then the Tsar says, come and see. Now we could talk the same language. But if someone has a lower level of neshama, lower level of soul, the soul is not shining, then you cannot see. Now even someone who does high level of neshama, but there is another way using the back door to get to the Zohar. And the other way is by lowering and conquering the body. By conquering the bodily passions, like we learned from the Baal Shem Tov now, that you have to conquer the Yetzirah, not destroy it, but conquer it. When you succeed in conquering the Yetzirah, then you can become a keli, you can become a vessel to receive the light of the Zohar. So these are two options of learning Zohar, of being a keli. Option number one, you have a high soul, a high neshama. Option number two, even if you don't have high neshama, but you conquered your Yetzirah, then you might also be a keli for the Zohar. Who decides the high soul and who makes that determination? Well, it's not always clear. It's not always black and white. And people could fool themselves. But let me just request again, you weren't here for a while, so I have to remind you, questions we're going to leave for a little oh, bit later. Sorry. Okay, <laughs> otherwise I get uh, distracted. I lose track of my thinking. Me too. Okay, <laughs> so you write it down. I don't have that luxury to write it down. Okay. Need a pen? No, 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 that's okay. all right. <laughs>
Okay. What was the move saying? I got distracted. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, too late. Right, okay, good. Now, I mentioned last time that who was the main student of the Arizal? Who wrote down the writings of the Arizal? What was his name? The Chaim Vital, exactly. The Chaim Vital, his name was the Chaim Vital. He was the main student of the Arizal. What was the name of the Arizal? No. The Arizal's name was Rabbi Yitzchok Luria. He lived like 450 years ago. Rabbi Yitzchok Luria, he's called the Arizal. And by the way, in some writings he's called the living Ari. Surprisingly. And he lived a very short time. How, uh, how long did he live? How short? 36 about, right. Yitzchok Luria. Luria. Where is he buried? Bernasvas, that's right. Okay, now the main student of the Arizal was was Rab Chaim Vital. He's the one that wrote the books of the Arizal. The Arizal himself did not write. Rab Chaim Vital wrote the books of the Arizal. Now the main book which covers the main Kabbalah of the Arizal is called Eitz Chaim, the Tree of Life. That's the main book of Kabbalah, Eitz Chaim. Now, in the introduction to Eitz Chaim, Reb Chaim Vital is very strong in discouraging people from learning Kabbalah if they're not fit, if they're not a keli. If they are a keli, it could produce enormous, tremendous results. But if you're not a keli, he's very discouraging in learning it. Now comes the Baal Shem Tov, and then the Magid Al and they took the teachings of the Arizal and the Zohar and presented it to us in a way that we could understand it. In a way that even if we're not a Kali, because we don't have a high neshama, and we didn't conquer our Yitzhah yet, we can still learn Chassidus, and Chassidus will draw from the Arizal and apply it to us in a practical way, in a way that we can understand and we can live with. The Moshev initiated this, and it continued with the Magid, and then the Alter Rebbe organized it in a, in, a, in a philosophical way to understand the teachings of the Arizal. Okay, so therefore nowadays uh, we have the world of Chassidus, which is a taste of the Zohar in a comprehensible way, but to study the Zohar and the teachings of the Arizal Kabbalah without Chassidus is considered to be dangerous. It's a dangerous thing. That's why the Talmud says, do not learn the secrets of the Torah, do not enter the garden, and we saw that last time, unless you reach the age of 40, until you complete the whole Talmud with the commentaries. After you finish the Talmud, which is the, considered the meat, the meat and the bread of our spiritual diet, then you could taste the secrets of the Torah. Because you have to be a keli to get to the secrets of the Torah. What Chassidus does is, because we're living in a dark age, the last generation before Mashiach comes, Chassidus draws from the secrets of the Torah and presents it to us in a way that we can handle, even if we didn't finish the entire Talmud yet. Now, once we know 
the care that has to be taken to learn Zohar and Kabbalah, now we could start learning this. Then we could start seeing what it's about. On condition that we know that we're learning something very lofty and holy. Okay, now we mentioned before that Zohar is based on perception and Talmud is based on analysis. Now let's understand, let's analyze more what this means, analysis and perception. What is it supposed to mean? Now it works like this. When you open up a book of Talmud, what's your starting point? Your starting point is you know nothing. Then you start learning information and you attempt to understand the information. Now how are you going to understand the information? You're going through a question and to an answer because whenever you learn something properly you're bound to run into questions. If you're learning a, pre- a page of Talmud and you don't have any questions in what it says that means you haven't learned it yet. Learning means that after you analyze it you have to have a question. That's the way Torah is built. That's the way the Talmud is built. When you learn you have to have a question. After you have a question you look at it again and you get an answer if you exert your mind. Okay, that's the second step. The third step is you go over it again, you're going to have another question. And therefore, learning of the Talmud never ends because you always have a question and then you have an answer. You have a question and you have an answer. Now, each time you have an answer, we call that a garment of logic. An answer we consider a garment of logic. When you ask a question, what you're doing is you're shattering that garment of logic and you're entering a higher, more subtle garment of logic. Then you have a question on that, and you shatter that garment, and you go to a higher garment. And that's what learning is all about. The question will take apart your initial understanding, your initial garment, and you reach a new garment. And every logic is full of garments, and learning means going deeper and deeper into the garments, and going into the deeper garments. That's what learning is all about. Okay, another way of saying it is that you go from the bottom, from below, and you climb up. How do you climb up? Take out the superficial garments and get to the deeper garments. Super garments in turn turn into superficial garments and you go deeper. And that's why learning is a lifetime career. You never stop learning. You're never, you're never able to say, I got it, I understand it. If someone says you understand it, the chances are you don't. I met a, a, an important rabbi in Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, who is now, now a rabbi of a community. He wrote some books. So we were once talking about different things and he said, so when I got married, my wife asked me questions and my answer was, usually I don't know. So my wife thought, who did I marry? Because she had heard that he's a scholar. And anything she asked, I don't know. So I, mean, I got fooled to marry getting the reference. That was our initial, that was the initial contact he had with she had. <laughs> what he was explaining is that when you really learn, you know that you don't know. That was the point. You know, learning means that you don't know and you try to figure it out. After you figure it out, again you see you don't know. Okay? If you see someone saying, oh, I know what it means, the chances are the person doesn't know what's going on. Okay? When you don't know, then you're in the process of learning. When I teach my students, and the student says, I don't understand, I have a question. I say, oh, now you're learning. Now I see you know what's going on, because you have a question. But if I ask the students, they say, do you know what's going on? Sure, we understand. I know they didn't learn it. 
Because learning means that you don't understand and you have to go deeper. If you don't have that not understanding, then you're not learning. Okay, so that's what Talmud is all about. That's why on one page of the Talmud, you could spend a lifetime. On one page, you could spend a lifetime. On one page of the Talmud, you could have thousands of pages written. Thousands of pages written on one page of the Talmud. And after all those pages are written, you could spend years and years on one page of the Talmud. Now, that's actually a problem that we have in Yeshiva, that uh, the teachers have this problem when you get into the Talmud, you explain it to the students, and you get into the analysis, you go deeper and deeper. What ends up happening is you could spend one week, two weeks, three weeks on one page, which has an advantage, but there's a disadvantage. There are so many other pages of Talmud you have to cover. So there's always this friction you have to push. you got to go on now. We have to stop at a certain point. You know, we reach a certain point, we're going on to the next page. You can't continue more and more because it's never ending. So that's what Talmud is all about. Talmud is analysis, question and answer disputes, and you dig deeper and deeper. Zohar. How does Zohar work? Zohar starts, you open up a book of Zohar, and when you learn it the right way, the first thing is you got the perception, you got the point. It's shining, Zohar is a light, it's shining. As soon as you open the book, you got the point, you see what's going on. Okay, now if you see what's going on, if you got the perception, then what's there in learning? You already got the perception, you know what's going on. The answer is that you have to take that concept, that perception, and put garments over it, make it make it something that you could understand and comprehend with your naked brain. Because the perception was not comprehension. The perception was a vision. What you see in a vision is not comprehension. The next step of learning the Zohar is try to take that perception and put garments of, of, of comprehension on that perception. Now let's give an analogy for that. <laughs> I'm going to give an example for this. Okay, give an example. This morning, I woke up, I saw it was snowing. No. Not, not in fact. Just imagine that. <laughs> I didn't lose my mind. So. Okay, I wake up in the morning, I see it's snowing. Then I ask myself a question, snowing? It's not that cold outside. What kind of snow is it? Frost, snow, it can't be. Okay. Now, what happens at that point? At that point, I have a conflict between what I saw and what I understand. My understanding says it can't be that it was snowing. It just doesn't make sense. But the fact is I saw that it was snowing. So I have a conflict between what I saw and that which I understand. Now, when you see something, it doesn't mean you understand it. There are certain things that you see and you could say, I don't understand it. Because seeing is just perception. Perception is reality. Reality doesn't mean that you comprehend the reality. Now when you hear something, when your explanation of something, you better understand it. If you don't understand it, you didn't hear anything. If you're an explanation... I thought you already had a perception. So you don't have a perception. Let's explain again. When you hear something, when you hear an explanation of something, if you understand the explanation, you heard something. 
If you don't understand it, you were wasting time. You didn't hear anything. That's what hearing represents. Hearing represents you understand that which you hear. If you heard something you didn't understand, you didn't hear anything. You wasted your time. When you see something and you don't understand it, the not understanding does not take away from what that which you saw. The fact is that you saw. You're going to ask, but I don't understand it. That doesn't change the reality. The reality is that I saw. Seeing is believing. You see, you know what was there. Okay. Let's give another example. They tell someone, I saw Mr. Ruben yesterday. He says, impossible. Ruben is in Australia. It's, it's impossible. And I say, I'm sorry. I happen to see Ruben. But it's impossible. I just spoke to him on the telephone. He's in Australia. So I'm going to say, you have a very good question. I don't have the answer. I don't understand it. But that's what I saw. I saw Ruben. I know who Ruben is. And the fact is, I saw him. I can't change that. So when you see, doesn't mean you understand. It doesn't mean, vision does not mean comprehension. Vision just means reality. Without comprehension. Sometimes comprehension will follow, but it doesn't necessarily have to follow. You can have a vision without comprehension. Now, when it comes to to prophecy, when it comes to prophecy, prophecy is equivalent to vision. Prophecy is a vision. The prophet sees in a vision. What does the prophet see? Now the prophet might see something and often will not understand what the prophet saw. So the prophet can have a vision of something, which means it was the reality. In the vision of the prophet it was a reality, but it doesn't necessarily follow that the prophecy is understood by the prophet. So sometimes it's going to stop at that point. The prophet saw something, no comprehension. Sometimes God will reveal to the prophet to understand that which the prophet saw. It should become understandable, comprehensible. But one doesn't necessarily have to follow the other. Okay, now that's what Zohar is. Zohar means there's a light that shines. It's a vision, it's a perception. So when you open up the book of the Zohar and you're a keli for it, you're a vessel for it, as soon as you open it up, there's a vision. It's not prophecy literally, but it's similar to prophecy. There's perception there and you see something, but then if you ask the person, please explain what you just saw. What's going to be the reaction? Explain what I just saw? You mean you didn't see it? You mean you're blind? Didn't you see the same thing? No, you didn't see it because you're not a keli, you're not a vessel. I saw it. Okay, but you're asking, please explain. What do you mean explain? How will I explain it to you? That which I saw is a, is, is a, is a perception. It's a perception which is beyond, it's beyond comprehension. So how do you expect me to explain it to you? Hold on, hold on. Write on your question. Okay, now. So the next step for the learner of the Zohar is after perception, he will make an attempt to make sense out of it, to put comprehension into it. Now, even if he doesn't make sense out of it, the learning was still a learning. The perception was still perception. But the learning will mean, let's try to make a garment of logic out of it. So the first garment will be a very subtle garment, but it's still too deep. It's still very deep in comprehension. 
Then there'll be another garment. It's still too deep. Then another garment. And you still keep on putting garment after garment until you might be able to make it logical and complete. Now, many of the mystics who learn Zohar, perhaps most of them, but I'm not really sure, many of them were not able to explain that which they learned in a comprehensible way. So they had their students, they did have their students, but their students also had perception. So when they would talk, they would talk in the level of perception. Is this what you saw? Okay, now look at this point, because open up this page, the other page, and you'll see a different point. So you read the next line and you say, oh, I just saw a new thing. So that's what learning is all about. But if you would ask those mystics, if you would ask those Mekubalim, now explain it, many of them would say, we're in a different language. We're in a different wavelength. We're talking in vision and perceptions, and you guys are in the, you're, you're blind, you don't see it. You guys have to understand it. This is beyond comprehension. Some mystics were able to make some garments of understanding for it, to make it closer to some type of comprehension, some type of organization, but it was always very subtle, very subtle, and there was so much soul inside this garment that if you got the garment without the soul, you were missing the whole thing. So the comprehension that some mystics did explain was a thin layer of logic. What was inside that thin layer was the soul of the concept, was the perception itself. And that garment was meant to tackle the garment, take it apart, and get to the soul. That's the way they learned the Zohar. And that was the different types of schools of Zohar. Some had thinner layers, some had bigger layers, but it was always coming back to the soul of the matter. Take out the garments and get to the soul. If you only stuck to the garments, you didn't get to the soul, you weren't learning Zohar, because Zohar is perception. And that's why we find that Arizal once said, this was on a summer day on Shabbos, the Arizal took a nap, the way the Arizal took a nap, different than we take a nap. And Arizal, when he woke up, he said, if I were to explain you what I just saw during my nap, it would take me 70, 80 years to explain it. What he saw in one hour would take 70, 80 years to explain it. Because what he saw was, vision was perception, now to explain it into the world of analysis, into the world of comprehension, would take 70, 80 years. That's why it says concerning Shloimo HaMelech, King Solomon, it says that King Solomon had, would explain concepts with th using 3,000 analogies, 3,000 mashalim. Now what was the purpose of using 3,000 mashalim to explain a concept? Mashal is an analogy. Now, what this means is, Shlema Melech is described as being Chochom Mikol Adam. He was more intelligent, he was supremely intelligent more than other people. He had this perception, he had depth, which the average person doesn't have, even the genius doesn't have. So when he had the concept, when he had a perception in his brain, he would try to teach it to others. To teach it to others, he would need 3,000 analogies. Why? Because each analogy is taking the concept and making, giving an example for it, giving an analogy for it, which is a garment of comprehension. But that garment is still too deep, so he gives another garment. 
and it's still too deep. He went all the way to 3,000 garments. When you reach the third thousandth one, then the person, the students were able to understand. Okay, so Shleimah Melch, when he's teaching it, which direction is he going? He's going from above to below. He's going to give one analogy, which is a garment of comprehension that's too deep for the students. He gives another one, all the way to 3,000. So Shlomo Melch begins from the top, from above, and he goes lower and lower. What about the students of Shlomo Melch of King Salman? What's their approach? They get the third thousand, they get number 3,000 analogy, the lowest level. That they understand by using their brain. What's their next step? They have to shatter that garment to get to the deeper level, to the deeper garment of, of understanding. They shatter that and they understand deeper. They have to go from below to above to get to the depth of Shlomo HaMelech. That's why it says that when Mashiach comes, Mashiach will teach Torah to whom? Who will Mashiach teach Torah? Well, it says he's going to teach Torah to everyone. Who's everyone? Everyone means Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, and the common people. He's going to teach Torah to everyone. The question is, how can you have one teacher teaching such radical dif extreme differences between Moshe Rabbeinu, between Moses, and the common person? When you're teaching a class, Can you accommodate college-level learning and kindergarten learning to come to everyone at the same level? That's impossible. Now here we're going to have Mashiach who's going to be teaching Torah to who? To Moshe Rabbeinu, 
Moshe Rabbeinu, the one who, who is Moshe Rabbeinu's teacher? God, you can't get a better teacher than that, right? You have Moshe Rabbeinu, who's teaching Torah to everyone, and then you have a common Jew whose IQ is very low, you know, doesn't know anything, and Mashiach has to teach this Moshe Rabbeinu together with this person. How will Mashiach succeed? So Chassidus answers, Mashiach will teach through perception, through vision. He's going to have visual education, which by the way, in the last several years, educators have got involved in visual education, where you teach not so much by talking, but by looking at the videos, and that's the way they teach it. Visual education is very effective, by the way. It's a very effective means of education. When Mashiach comes, he's going to use visual education. He's going to show deep perception, and when you see, you can have a kindergarten child and a professor looking at the same picture and seeing something new. That will be the method the Mashiach uses when he's going to teach all the Jewish people together. He's going to use the vision. Okay, so Zohar is based on vision, it's based on seeing, on perception. That's why you have to be a Kaili, you have to be a vessel for him, to have his vision. And it starts from above to below. That's where the Zohar starts. It starts with perception, then you begin the analysis. Now let's give an analogy for that. I'm not going to give 3,000 analogies for that. Let's have an analogy for this. The analogy would be, you have a blind person, someone blind, born blind, and you attempt to describe colors to a blind person. Compare that to a child who sees colors. Now, the question will be, who understands colors better? What's the answer? The child appreciates colors more. But who understands the science behind the colors? The blind person could be taught what makes this into blue and what turns this into green. What atoms and molecules will change? It could be the blind person will have a deeper comprehension of what colors are all about. So you could say that the blind person might understand colors more than a child who sees colors. So who understands colors better? Maybe the blind person. Who appreciates colors better? The child. Who has the perception? The child. The child has the perception, the blind person has the comprehension. Okay? But who has the real thing? The child has the real thing, the child sees the colors. The blind person is groping in the dark, understanding colors without ever seeing colors, without ever having the perception. Talmud means that you're groping in the dark and you're trying to understand what's going on. But there's no vision there. In the Talmud you analyze, you want to understand the, the, the logic, and you work on it. The Zohar is, open up the light, and you see. It's perception. The next step is, start understanding colors. That's the next step. Now, what Chassidus does is a miracle. Chassidus is a miracle. The miracle of Chassidus is that the Zohar, the secrets of the Torah, which are beyond understanding, it's based on perception, that perception is fed to us by means of chassidus. 
Sudas takes that which is higher than comprehension, it's only perceivable, it takes that perception and brings it down so that we should appreciate it in our brain too. That's the miracle of Chassidus. Chassidus is going on two opposites. Chassidus is based on a contradiction of concepts. The contradiction between perception of Zohar, which is higher than comprehension, and bringing it down into our brain that we should understand it. And Chassidus is the bridge between the two. It takes that which is higher and presents it to us in an understandable way. And that's why Chassidus is a preparation for Mashiach. Because when Mashiach comes, that's precisely what happens. What happens is that we will appreciate that which is above logic, the perception, will appreciate that in a physical way, in a physical way of understanding things. As the verse says, when Mashiach comes, all flesh will see godliness. Not just something spiritual, the flesh will appreciate that. Now, the preparation for the days of Mashiach, God doesn't like when you rush into holiness without preparation. God is against that. God always wants to have preparation. We see that by Matan Torah. When God gave us the Torah on Sinai, what was the preparation before that? There were 49 days of Sfirah, and the whole Mitzrayim was a preparation. Abraham was a preparation. And we're going to learn soon about Noach. Noach was also a preparation. There were many years of preparation for giving the Torah. <coughs> Likewise, we have preparation for the days of Mashiach. What's the preparation? Chassidus. preparation. How's the preparation? Because Chassidus takes the teachings of Mashiach, the teachings of perception, and brings it down to us in our level. That's the miracle of Chassidus. And this is where Chassidus differs from Jewish philosophy. Jewish philosophy, many of the books of Jewish philosophy were written by great Jewish tzaddikim, great Jewish leaders, holy men. And they wrote Jewish philosophy. But Chassidus is not Jewish philosophy. Where do they differ? Philosophy is logical. Logical means let's understand religion by using logic. What will be the net result? It will be a religion based on logic. A religion based on logic is not a religion. Because religion has passion and faith which run deeper than logic. So if you build a religion on logic, you don't have a religion. Now why did these tzaddikim write books on Jewish philosophy? Because in those days, like the Rambam, Maimonides, Maimonides also wrote, wrote books on, on philosophy. In those days, the teachings of Greek philosophy and other philosophies were spreading amongst the Jews, and there had to be a means of defending the Jewish position of religion, so that's why they wrote books in Jewish philosophy. But philosophy was based on comprehension, on logic, that's the foundation, and that's what you build on. Chassidus is the opposite of philosophy. Chassidus is based on perception. It's based on what is above logic. Then it takes that which is intrinsically above logic, and it brings that down into our brain. It shoves it down into our brain, that which is intrinsically above logic.
Okay. Do we have any questions now? Yeah. yeah. Just on this point. Um, you said the fittest is two-sided. What you just explained, bring it down to our brain. How right. is it the other way? Two-sided means it, can, it takes the above logic, right. that's one side. Down. It brings down into logic, which is the other side. Right. And it joins the two opposites together. Okay. That's the miracle of physics. Right, right, that's right. Yes? People, some people don't know about Siddhas equate Siddhas to Kabbalah. And they say, just like Kabbalah, you're not supposed to learn until you're a Kaling, don't listen to Siddhas. So how would you Because the reality of Siddhas takes the concepts into a logical way, into a way that we could understand and we could utilize it, as opposed to Kabbalah, which is not that way. Like you mentioned last time, the Balshemtiv was against learning Kabbalah. You're not a Kaling for it. Because Kabbalah is the perception itself. You're not a Kaling for it. Right, that's right. No, not Kabbalah. But learn Siddhis. He himself taught Siddhis. It was his way of, of giving us of Kabbalah in a way that we can understand it. Uh, uh, that's uh, right. That's, that's right, yes. No, it's not the same. I don't know how it's how but perception is very individualized. You say that 20 people, what is this, right? Perception is the individual, the brain, the way it's perceived, the vision. No. How does the Talmud, because that's what perception is. No, you see what's like this. The Talmud says that just like no two people look alike, no two people understand alike. Everyone understands differently. But there's a difference between comprehension when I say initial state, I mean perception before the comprehension. When you have perception before comprehension, then I could tell you that everyone sees alike, everyone perceives alike. For example, I'm going to show you this, not give you a chance to analyze it. Very possibly you're all going to see the same thing. You all saw the same thing. Now if I'm going to leave this out for a couple of minutes and you'll analyze it, you'll understand it differently. But if I leave it for one step and look at this, you all saw the same thing. But you know what it is. No. When you have perception, you don't understand it yet. You just know there's a certain reality, but you don't necessarily comprehend it yet. But everybody will interpret it differently. Interpretation means comprehension. But that's the second stage. The first stage is perception before comprehension. Is there a reality that's totally subjective and totally objective? Yes. 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 In other words, there are things. Well, a child could also see things 
but doesn't have the mechanism to analyze it and understand. For the child also saw something, there was a perception there, there's no comprehension necessarily. Now we're dealing over here, see sometimes you have perception which is comprehensible, you just didn't get a chance to comprehend. Sometimes you can have perception which is higher than comprehension, which we were dealing with today. There are concepts and perception that you perceive as a reality, but it's higher than comprehension. When you have perception higher than comprehension, then that's what we call the Zohar, that's Kabbalah. Okay? So when that comes, uh, oh, a little confused. Oh, well, a little. <laughs> When you use the word see in the Zoma, first of all, I don't know if that's used literally, literally see. And the second question is when the Messiah comes and things are going to be taught visually, what happens to the deaf people? Now, can't the deaf people visualize? They could visualize. They could visualize, but I assume that I mean, the deaf people... they have special powers to see because this is all... Uh, yeah, oh, do you mean the blind people? The deaf. Everyone's going to be healed, right? Now, I want to know what's going to happen with the deaf people. Now, can't the what's deaf also visualize in some way? Well, and there's also a deaf person could see. Vision has nothing to do with being deaf. If anything, blindness has to do with vision, but not, not the... But if you don't hear, your vision is stronger. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Okay, but this doesn't relate to our discussion. It doesn't relate to our discussion. But the first thing that you ask, uh, does vision, does seeing mean literally? No, it doesn't mean literally that you open your eyes and you see. You can close your eyes and have, and, and see the concept. When you open up a Zohar, and someone is occasion for it, you see the concept even if your eyes are closed. So there's something called seeing of the brain, seeing of the soul. Which doesn't mean that you see it physically necessarily. Right. That's it goes beyond beyond reality. It, it is the reality. It is the reality. It's the perception of the reality that you're seeking of. A non-physical reality. Something that's not physical. Right. Because you're saying you saw snow, but we know that there was no snow, but you saw something, so was it a non-physical reality that you saw? You saw a vision? No, no, no. If, uh, no. If I saw the snow, I meant that I really saw it and was really there. But I just don't understand how the snow was there. So when you open the door, you see a vision of something. It's not something physical that you see, no. It's a deeper reality. I'll give you, I'll give you an, a muscle for that, an analogy for that. Because we are physical beings, and our right. mind works and everything is physical, even though it's very minute. Air turns into small atoms. Right, that's our problem. Right. Our problem is that we always put garments on it, which takes out the spirituality of it. That's why the, the, the Valshendra was against on in Kabbalah, because you're going to have all those physical characteristics that you're always going to put into your brain. So it's not purity, that's right, that's right, that's right. We need a, a, a muscle for that, an analogy for that. You see a person who's angry. Did you see the anger? Did you see a person angry? Did you see the anger? Huh? 
When you see a person, you see he's angry. Did you see? You see that he's angry? Huh? But did you see the? Did you see the anger? Did you see the anger? You don't see it. You're interpreting his reaction. You see the action that You see what action? You see the expression of anger. That's what you could see. You can't see anger itself. You can see the expression of anger, right? So when you see that someone is angry, people, the way people talk in common language, they say, I saw the guy was angry. What, what did you see? When you see the expression of anger, you could say you saw anger. Now, theoretically, you could have people who don't know what anger means. They don't know how to interpret anger. Right? But if you know what anger means, if, if you experienced anger, and you understand anger, you see someone angry, you say, I saw the guy was angry. But if you never experienced anger, you never know what anger is, and you see someone being angry, you don't know what that means. You can't interpret that. So the Zohar means that you have a vision, you see that the person was angry, because you know what anger is. Could you see life? Could you see a person is alive? Do you see that the person is alive? But could you see life? Could you see life? So my question is, how does this all proceed? How does the mechanism? Oh, that's what I said before. That's what I said before. That, that, that's what I'm doing with the muscle. There are people who could perceive, or people could perceive anger. If you know what anger is, you could perceive anger. When you see someone angry, you can perceive anger. Not everyone can perceive that, right? Some people have talent, some don't. Some, some people have a talent of seeing what are one time. Is a person a nice person or a coarse person? Some people have the perception by one minute speaking to someone, I got the person. Some people don't have that. Without the Zohar. Like for example, uh, what's the difference between a good doctor, a real good doctor, or not a real good doctor? So the way it used to be and the way it really is, my, my, uh, my in-laws describe a doctor in Uruguay. When they were in Uruguay, so there was a doctor that would say, that would take the lip, take a look at the lip and say, you got this problem, this and this problem, that's all. What was it? Was perception, right? Okay, there's, a, there's something called perception, 
which if you'll ask the doctor, prove it to me that this is the problem. Could you prove it to me? What's that going to say? Don't you see? Right? He won't necessarily have a rational explanation which will convince other doctors. It's just a certain perception is there. It could be a physical perception, right? The same thing is when it comes to learning. Not so, even Talmud, anything. When you learn something, two people are learning it, and then one person could say, you know, I'm going to tell you what this means. This is what it means. The other person will say, prove it. Like, listen, I can't prove it to you now. But I know this is the way it is. It's going to take me a couple of days to prove it to you, but I know this is the way it is. God created people with the power of perception. By most people, the power of perception is asleep. It's not activated. But every person has this power of perception, and the difference between a genius and a regular person is how much you develop the power of perception. Okay? Now, a holy person will channel this perception into the realm of holiness. And, uh, and will say that, like if a tzaddik looks at a person, a tzaddik, a tzaddik looks at a person, the tzaddik perceives, you know, you were just thinking some bad thoughts. The when he would say a maima, he would say a discourse, all the years that I saw the Rebbe say a maima, so he would close his eyes and say the maima. That was close. It was a special song. They said, maima is a Hasidic discourse. So by forbidding, the Rebbe would speak different things. He called tzichas. The Mullah Fabang and sometimes it would be a mimer. Mimer means the level would give a signal, it would start a song, the level took out a handkerchief, he'd close his eyes and say the mimer in a special tune. So I heard that originally, in the first years, the level had his eyes open, he would say mimer. But then one time he said, the thoughts, the foreign thoughts are distracting, he started closing his eyes. Okay. For many people who went on Sunday to get down from the level, and they saw the level was able to read their minds. A tzaddik has a deeper perception. A tzaddik could read a person's mind. A tzaddik could see there's something wrong over here. There's something wrong. There's a deeper perception there. Is that point is, what's the purpose of creation? Why did Hashem create us? Hashem created us to serve the Deuteronomy Mitzvahs. That perception is not important in serving Hashem. Hashem will only give the perception to people who need it to serve Hashem, to help others or for other reasons, which only He knows. But the average person doesn't strive, let me have this perception. The average person should strive, let me serve God. How do I serve God? Learn Torah, do mitzvahs, and so on. That's serving God. Perception, who needs that? It's like the saying that Chassidim have, uh, Chassidim was saying, does your Rebbe have the Holy Spirit? Does he have prophecy? So Chassid said, what do I care? If the Rebbe needs it, he has it. If he doesn't need it, then who needs it? We're not looking for greatness and spirituality. We're looking for simple things. Listen to God. Do what God wants. God wants a dwelling place in this world. Let's bring the dwelling place below in this world. Anything that furthers that is important in serving Hashem. Well, there are people who have perception, who have perception, 
but they have it the wrong way. And when they have it the wrong way, then we have the story we said last time, four people entered the garden and they didn't make it. Because that's, that perception, if it's done the wrong way, which it often is done the wrong way, it leads a person to focus on himself. And that's focused on changing the world. You focus on changing your own life, and that's not the purpose of creation. Okay. No. No. No, it's not all the same thing, no. Because the prophets are different levels of prophecy also. There are higher prophets, higher degrees and lower degrees. So it's not all the same thing. It's uh, the example I would give for that is some people are colorblind, but they can see black and white. Some could see more colors, some could see more colors. So there are different degrees of prophecy. Right. It comes from the same source, but that source could be developed more and less, deeper and more shallow. It could always be deeper and deeper. That's right. That's right. That's right. Now we saw before, in the story we said before, that the Al-Tarebim, we began to tell all the story, the Al-Tarebim would see the Magid. When would he see the Magid? Anyone remember? We began the class with that story. The Al-Tarebim would see the Magid when? Whenever he wanted. Awake or asleep? Awake. Right? The Rebbe would see the Magid awake whenever he wanted. But the Balshem when would he see him? On the Shabbos. On Shabbos and Yantiv when the Balshem wanted, not when he wanted. But after Petabok, after he was released from prison, it changed. What was the new thing? On Shabbos and Yantiv, whenever the Rebbe wanted, he would see them. So there are changes even amongst these these tzaddikim, they also have different changes in their lives. They continuously in the higher. It's not always the same thing. And then there are differences between what the Magid sees, what the Tzemach Tzedek saw, and each Rebbe. It's all different. We don't know what the differences are too much, but we are, from what they wrote, we know there are differences. Okay, so we focus today on more on the introduction of Zohar, but we still didn't get today into the Zohar itself. So, God willing, we'll try to get to the Zohar itself next week. But after the three-part series, we don't have to have answers to any questions, because we're not supposed to have understood it, or else we wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't really, uh, so we, have, we should have questions, but we shouldn't have answers, but we get down to three-part theory. Well, it depends, right? then you should get an answer. Okay. And if I don't, you're not supposed to have a question. Well, you have to listen to the tape again. You have to listen to the tape again. No, I have to think about it. Okay. It's a big job. 
Yeah. 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 Thank you. 